Foundation Church. We used to be Center Church, and so that's why it's ingrained in her brain. Um, but yes, I want to reiterate just a couple things about what she said. First of all, the Christmas Eve gathering is one of my absolute favorite things we do all year. It's at 10 a.m. That makes it no less special. In fact, I am very much looking forward to gathering in the morning with you all and then sending you away so I can enjoy my evening with my family. Not, not anything against you, of course, just the fact that I get to do that uh, once every 11 years. And, uh, and then the other thing that I want to um, reiterate is just the fact that you know you should indeed check out this conference. It's going to be a really cool thing and it's a really big deal. So please um, follow up with Pastor Jessica on that. Okay, will you do me a favor and stand for the reading of God's Word? Try not to stand in the way of the screen. It will be on the screen. You can follow along in your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. And we are going to start in verse 18. Uh, this is not the lengthiest passage that we've read, but it is a lengthier one, so please follow along to the best of your ability. Verse 18 says, When Jesus saw the the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of Gardenay, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass them. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending to the pigs ran off, went to the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Go ahead and have your seat. Woo! What a wild passage. And I am excited to talk about it. There's a lot happening in there indeed. Um, in just a few weeks, uh, this is not a promotion, I promise, but if I come off as one, I'm going to be 39 in a couple weeks. Yeah. Okay, yes, I know. Um, actually, my wife... Oh, yeah, she turns 40 on Christmas Day, so, you know, yep, she's busy rocking the cradle over here. 
Me and the youngsters will hang out. One of the things, though, that's been interesting about um, turning in and like arriving into my late 30s is that I'm now old enough, at least I feel like I am, to experience sort of those good old days type of thoughts. You know, like I'm kind of just sort of arriving on that doorstep, I feel like. Oh, please. Recently, I was walking into a, a store and I saw somebody wearing a t-shirt uh, that caught my attention. It was a blockbuster video t-shirt. Yeah. And instantly, I recalled a series of memories uh, from early years in my relationship with Thea and the fun times we had around watching movies. We would often go to the movie theater or rent a new movie from the video store. It was absolutely one of our favorite activities. But there was one particular aspect of going to the movie store that I enjoyed the most. And that was, of course, the hunt for the perfect movie. Anybody else relate? Yeah. Okay, 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 I'm, I'm getting you there. Now this of course was the exact thing that drove Thea crazy. Uh, because every single time we went to Blockbuster Video or Hollywood Video, I was convinced in my mind that there was the perfect selection to be made and that anything short of that perfect selection was costly. I mean, think about it. I was about to spend some of my very limited amount of money on this selection. 20 year old poor me, college student working part time. I was going to spend some of my valuable time, super valuable, 20, you have no extra time obviously, watching this selection and because I rented this movie, yes some of you will not understand this, I rented it from a physical location. Yeah, yeah that's right, a physical location where I had to go to and pick it up and thus return it in the condition I found. Right? Crazy, crazy stuff. And so ultimately, the cost of my selection was very, very steep. This was not an occasion to be careless or flippant in my decision-making process. And so this, of course, led to large amounts of time spent grazing each aisle, up and down each aisle, combing each cover of each video, searching for that enticing prospect. It was like the cinematic, thank you Malcolm, yes, I think it's funny too. It was like the cinematic rendition of speed dating, or so I imagine, I've never speed dated, but it was kind of what it felt like, it was exciting, it was like any moment there was going to be the perfect one. And then eventually a cover uh, of a film would grab my attention and it would spark this intrigue only to flip it over and be disappointed by the synopsis on the rear cover, thus once again starting the hunt anew, okay? Eventually, we came to the right film, the right movie, the right DVD, if you will. A selection was made, my wife's spirits renewed, and then we would make our way to the checkout counter only to find out that the movie we selected qualified us for a second rental at half price. And the search for the second most perfect selection began. Now these exciting moments obviously carried a cost with them. For me it was the pressure of finding the diamond in the rough and for my wife it was her sanity. But nonetheless I wanted to make a really good decision because it was going to cost me. 
Well, today, we're going to observe Jesus telling his disciples that following him involves a cost. Right. Matthew captures brilliantly these three stories of caution, if you will, and he places them in a strategic spot in his gospel. So I'd like to take just a few moments and recall where we have been over the last couple of weeks to show you how important not only the stories are, but the placement of the stories. So two weeks ago, we were in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, and we finished it. And at the very end of the sermon, Jesus gives this call to action. Basically, he says, if you're going to build your life as my apprentice, as my disciple, then you will be like a house built on a solid foundation. Conversely, if you build your life ignoring my teachings and ignoring my commands, your life will be fragile and the next storm in your life may indeed wipe you out. Now these contrasting images are the capstone thought on a series of teachings that Jesus gives us that become this framework Chapters 5, 6, and 7, this framework for us to build our lives around Jesus' teachings. Jesus gives his audience great wisdom. Everyone who reads those chapters, the people who were there in that moment, great wisdom on things like money and relationships and faith. Very important topics. And Jesus' teachings on these matters were so good. They were so imperative. They were so compelling that it says that people were amazed at what they heard. Listen to this, Matthew 7, 28 and 29, the end of the sermon, Jesus had just finished, finished teaching and Matthew says about it, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So Matthew is careful to point out that the crowds were amazed for one particular reason, because Jesus taught as one with authority, yes. not as the rest of the teachers. So then immediately following the Sermon on the Mount, where we were last week, Matthew highlights three miracles that Jesus performed, and they were indeed miraculous. First, we have the man with leprosy. He touches him and heals him. That was a no-no in that day. It was essentially a death sentence to have leprosy, a slow, painful one where you were excluded from society out of necessity, but having no social contact, no physical contact, and Jesus not only brings him in, but he touches him and he heals him. And then it goes on to the centurion's servant, a man working under the guard of Rome, under the banner of Rome, who was oppressing Jesus's people comes to him and says, I have faith that you can heal my servant. I'm responsible for him. I have faith that you can heal him. But just say the word. I don't even need you to come. I know you're so powerful that you can just say the word. And Jesus says something very interesting. I've never seen faith like this in Israel. Right. Man, that must have made some people mad. <laughs> <laughs> the people who were not supposed to be there having the most faith, I'm certain that that did not go over well with everyone. But Jesus heals him. Yeah. 
And then thirdly, we see that Jesus arrives at Peter's house and his mother-in-law um, had a fever and Jesus heals that and then proceeds to cast out demons. Now, each of these miracles, they show that Jesus healing a different type of outsider in each occasion. They were all social outsiders. They were not welcomed in, welcomed into the religious circles, and yet Jesus welcomes them in and heals them because he had authority. Because he had authority to do so. Jesus changed the social norms and the religious expectations of his day as he welcomes the outsider to follow him. Now, I absolutely love these hopeful passages because if it was only the religious experts that were allowed to follow Jesus, we would all be in trouble, yours truly included, okay? They were, they were lineage insiders. They weren't just religious experts. They were the only people who were allowed to carry that banner on. And Jesus is saying, I'm growing the family of God. So I love those passages. However, the placement of those passages is so interesting considering what we read next, which is the section that we just read today, the second half of chapter eight. Let me read it to you, at least the first part again, so that you remember what it says. Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now this may indeed be the most uninviting invitation you'll ever hear from Jesus. <laughs> right? You read that and you're like, huh? It's like... It's like this. It's like when I asked Thea, I'm like, hey, do you want to go do something with me? And her response is, yeah, I guess. <laughs> right? You're like, no, you don't. Like, clearly, you don't. The first man says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. The dude appears to be absolutely psyched to follow Jesus. He says, whatever you're going to do, I am going to follow you. And Jesus responds, Essentially, that's nice and all, but I travel a lot. I know you prefer for mattresses in the hotel rooms, but we sleep on the floor. And I know you like to drink light roast, but all I'm serving is folders, <laughs> right? And I know you need some downtime in the evenings, but sometimes we travel all night, so I'm just not sure you meant what you said because this is not the easy life that you think it might be. You really need to think about this decision before you rush into this commitment. Now this response seems odd to me. I would think that Jesus would be elated to hear someone say, Teacher, I will go wherever you go. But Jesus seems to think that this man does not mean what he says. And maybe it's because he addresses Jesus as teacher when many were already addressing him as Lord. You see, Jesus knows that anyone who thinks that he's simply a wise teacher will not survive the sometimes difficult journey of being a true disciple. 
Jesus is actually helping this man. He's saying, hey, following me comes at a cost. And I want you to know that before you make a commitment. And in this example, Jesus is saying, following me might cost you your comfort. Verse 21, another disciple said to him, this is the second example, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, again, another harsh seeming response from Jesus. But to the original audience, it would have made a little bit more sense, um, not in the way though, that we think about it. It's likely that this man's dad, um, if he had just passed away, let's say this, he wouldn't be out mingling amongst the people, right? That's not what's happening here. It wasn't like he passed away and then Jesus comes by and he's like, oh, let me go. It's, it's not that at all. In fact, scholars think that what's happening in this account is that this man is saying, hey, I want to follow you, but I need to make sure that my plans go through first. And then I'll meet up with you. As if following Jesus is like meeting your buddy at the mall to do some Christmas shopping, right? Like, hey, let me get some stuff done, and then Jesus, I'll be there after I get my stuff done to do your stuff, okay? And so Jesus responds appropriately. He says, if you want to follow me, you cannot come with any conditions at all. That could not be the case. If you want to follow me, then you need to set aside your plans and your timeline and follow my plans and my timeline for you. Jesus is not being rude. He's being clear. That's all he's doing. He's very clear. Jesus has incredible plans for every one of his disciples. And at times, those plans, they will require that we have high levels of faith. And at times, it will require us to have some personal sacrifice. And Jesus wants that to be clear. This idea led me to that passage in Jeremiah 29 that we so often hear quoted. I want to read it to you. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope. And a future. Now, this indeed is a beautifully encouraging verse, but the context is important to understand what is happening. It is a word from God to the remaining elders and priests that oversaw the Israelites in exile, right? An entire group of people have been forcefully removed from their homes, from their land, demanded to be servants and even slaves. And God, in the midst of this terrible circumstance, says, Hey, I know these are some bad circumstances, but don't lose hope. I have a plan for you. So this verse is not this promise from God to you or to I that we will have everything we want, right? Or that we will accomplish everything that we set our mind to accomplish. And so similarly for Jesus... When this man says, hey, I want to follow you, but let me just wrap up what I've got going over here first. Jesus responds, I need you to be all in on what we are about to do and set aside what you are doing. I need you to do that right away. I need you to stop that. I need you to go with me. And we're going to do what we have planned to do. So this passage, again, is a very blunt passage about the cost of following Jesus in 
Here is the first caution to his audience. A disciple of Jesus places their plans and desires in second position to the call and command of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You don't have to abandon them. You just have to put them behind what Jesus commands, what Jesus calls. The second story doubles down on this reality. Uh, Jesus calming the storm, starting in verse 23. I'm going to reread it to you. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Okay, so wait a second. Just three sentences ago, we see Jesus saying, hey, make sure you count the cost of following me. You might be overestimating your faith. And now, when the storm hits, Jesus wakes up to his disciples and they're panicking. Ah, save us. And his response is, you have little faith. Why are you afraid? Like, what? This is getting wild. This almost made me laugh when I was reading and studying it because I know, and many of you might as well, how serious a storm on the water feels. In a boat, in the middle of the storm, is not a place that you want to be. You feel helpless. And no matter how qualified of a swimmer you are or the quality of your life vest, it's still a very dangerous situation. And so the disciples feel the seriousness of this moment. And what do they do? They turn to Jesus. This seems like the perfect response, right? So why does Jesus rebuke them for having little faith? And truthfully, we can only guess because it doesn't say directly why Jesus rebukes them, but it stands to reason, as I've thought on this, that Jesus rebukes their small levels of faith because they have been witnessing so many miraculous things. Right? We just talked about it. He restored the leper. He cured the servant from a distance. He healed a fever in an instant. And Jesus is calling them to greater levels of faith in the middle of a storm because he is with them in the storm. Yes, that's good. He didn't abandon them. He didn't say, get in the boat and go over there. I'll see you later. He is with them in the storm. Yes. And then what does he do? It says that he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. That's incredible. Yes. When you read scripture, sometimes you come across single verses where miraculous things, you're like, that would be insane if I had witnessed that. And they've already had plenty of those experiences. They say, what kind of man is this? And so when you consider the first two accounts from today's passage, um, they are individually impressive, awesome lessons about faith. But see, Matthew is crafting this powerful work because they are actually meant to be considered together. The warning we see in the first section is, hey, following Jesus 
will cost you something, therefore be certain of your decision. But once you decide, have faith. Because God, who can heal miraculously and speak the weather into submission, yes. is also with you in your storms. For those who have been with us through the Matthew series, there's a very similar idea at the end of Matthew. You've probably heard it. Matthew 7, 24 and 25 says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat, and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. The storm came, but the wise builder did not crumble. So it turns out that the placement of these interactions is strategic and thought-provoking. We're actually less than one chapter removed from Jesus' instruction about building our lives on the right foundation so that we can weather the storms of life. And then here we have an account of an actual storm, right? The teaching about the storm, one chapter later, the actual storm, and the one thing that addresses these storms simultaneously, congruently, is the words of Jesus. Yeah. Jesus says, listen to my teachings, do them and you will survive the storm. Jesus says, storm be gone, and the storm was gone. Yes. There are powerful words in scripture and they are the words of Jesus. They are the teachings of Jesus. They are the commands of Jesus. There are great power in these words and we must never forget this but this isn't the end of the chapter as you know we read it already but i'm going to read it to you again the last account starting in verse 28 it says this when he arrived to the other side in the region of the i think it's got so anyway i'm not really great at that but two demon possessed men coming from the tombs met him they were so violent that no one could pass them what do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off went into the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Okay, so there's two clues from this story that connect this story to the previous two accounts that we just read. First, we see this escalating reality of the cost of following Jesus. So it makes sense, right? In the first story, Jesus warns the disciples, hey, be sure you want to do this. Because once you get on the boat, pun was intended there, by the way, there is no turning back. In the second story, we see the reality that once you're on the boat, the storms are coming. They're going to come. Jesus does not say if the storms of life come. He says when the storms of life come. And then in the third story, he says if you survive the boat trip, there may be demons waiting for you. 
Now, the second half of Matthew chapter 8 is like a PR nightmare for Team Jesus. If he was a modern-day influencer, they'd be like, what do we do with this? There is no church. Did you guys know there's church marketing? Okay, there's no church marketing out there that would suggest this portion of Matthew as a way to attract people <laughs> to your church and to Jesus. Hey, come check out our church. We're not sure you're going to make the cut. But if you do, there's life-threatening storms and scary demons, okay? But there's also a second observation that stands out to me. And it's an encouragement in this story. The story highlights, if you notice, it highlights how scary the demon-possessed men were to their community. And they've tried to eradicate them. The account in Mark, she talks about them shackling them and then just bust out of the shackles. No one could even travel in that direction because they would violently harass anyone who did. They strike fear into the rest of the community, but the one thing that strikes fear into them is Jesus. Verse 29, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They knew Jesus was coming. They were terrified. They were like, this isn't the plan though. This isn't time yet. They were terrified of Jesus because Jesus had authority. Verse 20, I'm sorry. Verse 29, I'm gonna read it to you again. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Then it goes on to say that they were requesting to be cast into the pigs and then Jesus allows it and they run in the water. It's just a crazy story. And I was like, why did they ask to go into the pigs? And if I'm honest, I just don't know. And why did Jesus agree to them? I still don't know. We just don't know. But what I do know is that these two demons were afraid that he was going to torture them. They were torturing everyone else. Jesus was going to torture them. The demons knew that Jesus had authority over heaven and earth, as he says in the Great Commission. So what do we do with a section like this? Right, I already said it's a crazy section. I know there's some first-time people here. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. What do we do? I was just being faithful to the text where God was taking us. So far in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this picture of how Jesus, we see this picture of Jesus that shows him to be kind and wise and merciful and gracious and loving, and he is indeed all of these things. So I think it's easy for us, especially in this Christmas season, to think about Jesus in only these softer terms, right? A savior coming to the earth as a baby. Babies are so cute, except for when they're not. (laughs) This little baby lays sweetly in a manger, and these are good and right ways to think about Jesus, but it is also right for us to think about the power of Jesus, about the authority of Jesus, about the reason he came to earth in the first place, and that is, stay with me here, to eradicate sin and to destroy evil. To the disciples, anyone who's discipling under someone else, that means that you follow them, that you live like them, 
that you take up their cause. And so therefore, these warnings that Jesus offers to those people who say they want to follow him, hey, are you sure? Because if you do, there's a cost in Now, if you decided to follow Jesus, it is indeed the best decision that you will ever make. You know that. But there is a cost, there is a cost involved, and you know that. And you felt that, and at times it's been heavy. Now, what is that cost? Practically speaking, you probably have evidence in your own life. Because you will become more and more aware of what that cost is the longer you follow Jesus. But there is one thing that we all have in common as followers of Jesus. There is an enemy who wants to destroy your life. Trying to destroy and steal from you every good thing about your life. Just like Jesus had an enemy, we have an enemy. He was the leader. We are the disciples. There is an enemy for both of us. Now, thinking about the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew, it's this like beautiful, wonderful account of the miraculous. And it's full of hope and it's full of peace and joy, like all the reasons why we light these candles. But there's actually a very different Christmas account in the book of Revelation, and you might be familiar with it. It's equally real, but it's a very different account. And because of that, I want to actually read it to you. If I just told you about it, if you've never read it yourself, you probably wouldn't even believe that this is in the Bible. But in Revelation chapter 12, it's gonna be on your screen. I'm gonna read the whole chapter because it's the account of Jesus' arrival. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The dragon, the great dragon, was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by blood, by the blood of the land and by the word of their testimony. 
They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Mm -hmm. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening his mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged. And the woman went off and at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Jesus' warning to people in Matthew chapter 8 comes from the very real knowledge that following him comes at a cost, and that there's a spiritual enemy who is described as enraged and is determined to take out the anger that it has on who? It says those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. That's the disciple of Jesus. Yeah. And if that's you, then that's also you. If you're a follower of Jesus, the dragon is enraged, trying to destroy you. But you need not be afraid because Jesus has the power to calm the storm. And more importantly, he didn't just do it from afar. He did it with you in the middle of the storm. He will continue to do it from the middle of the storm. I'm going to invite the band up. In just a moment, we're going to pray and receive communion. But you reflect on a passage like this, right? There's crazy miracles happening. There's wild accounts of Jesus' interactions. Him not only rebuking some people's half-hearted commitment, but rebuking the winds and the waves. He has authority. He has power. He can heal. And he wants you to follow him. But if you do, he wants you to recognize there is a cost. And the cost of that is that the devil will hate you and try to destroy you and take away everything good from you. And so your fight back, much like it said in the Advent reading, is to first say yes, to say yes to Jesus, to his invitation to follow him. That's actually the only safe place. Much like being in the storm, the only safe place was to be with Jesus, ironically. And that's the call that we have in our lives today, to be with Jesus through the thick of the storm, the thin of the storm, good days, bad days. There is a cost, but it's still worth everything it costs you. So just a moment, we're going to pray. In fact, uh, Paige and Mike are going to be available for prayer underneath the storm sign. So fitting, in my opinion. <laughs> but we're also going to receive communion. Now, 
If you've been with us for any amount of time, we have traditionally done communion right from your seat. But we're trying something different today, okay? So I know, ooh, different, that's bad. <laughs> back on the table in the back, there are both crackers and cups of juice. And at your convenience, during the song, after I pray, you're welcome to just stand up with your family by yourself, whatever you feel equipped and prepared to do, and go back. And if you decide you don't want to do that, that's okay. Communion is for the Christ follower. It's for the person who is a disciple of Jesus. And so while it's just a cracker and juice to everybody, you're welcome to drink the juice and eat the cracker. For the Christ follower, it's a symbol. It's an exercise. It's the tangible reminder of the grace of Jesus Christ. So we get to drink it and eat the cracker. And Jesus says to do this often to remember me. And so that's why we do it. We take scriptures like this one and we see how beautiful and how amazing and how powerful Jesus is. And our response is worship. And one of the ways we worship is to receive communion. So you're welcome to walk back there and then return to your seats. We're going to sing two songs, okay? I'm just giving you the time frame. We've got two songs to do. Deal? And then if you would like prayer for one of those storms that you're in, or maybe you've never said yes to Jesus and you want to do that, whatever the case may be, Paige and Mike would love to pray with you. They would love to pray with you. So will you do me a favor and stand and I'm going to pray for us. God, we thank you for this beautiful opportunity to gather and to worship and that you brought before us a, a challenging word like this one, but God, what an incredible story of your power and a challenge to us to set aside our comfort and our agenda and align ourselves with your agenda. In this Christmas season, God, that we may not be distracted by unnecessary things, but that we would enjoy in its fullness the celebration of your arrival. And however we choose to do that, may we be present and may it be full for us because you are key. So God, I pray a blessing over our body. And as we receive the communion elements, let it be sweet to you. Let it be like a song from our hearts. And for those who need prayer, that they would be courageous enough to receive prayer from our prayer team. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.